You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. The growth of the government was a result of the withholding tax, which could not have been put in effect without the force and pressure of the war. The government stood here, its mouth open, stunned to see what a Niagara of money was coming in. Former network TV news anchor David Brinkley. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. The young journalist David Brinkley first came to Washington, D.C. in 1943, just as World War II was starting to transform the city. The sleepy southern town that had been home to a small government was suddenly burgeoning into this big city, a big metropolis, with lots of government buildings, lots of bureaucrats, lobbyists, and lots of money. Brinkley had a front row seat to all of that. After the war, in 1956, Brinkley, still with NBC, was paired with Chet Huntley to anchor the network's evening newscast. Their nightly sign-off became something of a cultural catchphrase. Good night, Chet. Good night, David. And good night for NBC News. After leaving NBC in the 1970s, David Brinkley joined ABC, where he was the founding host of the Sunday morning show This Week. And finally, in the late 1980s, David Brinkley wrote his first book, a memoir of those Washington years called Washington Goes to War. And that's when I met him. So here now from 1989, David Brinkley. I think I agree with the reviewer who said that those of us who are too young to have remembered when this was all, when the transformation was taking place, will be perhaps even more fascinated by this story than those of you who were here while it was happening. This is a fascinating story. Well, thank you. I think younger people might very well be impressed with it because if they read it, they will see where a good deal of what we take for granted came from. We'll see how Washington and the U.S. government, not the city so much, but the U.S. government, came to be the colossus it has become. It's hard to imagine Washington never having been that colossus with uh, with huge office buildings filled with bureaucrats and the Pentagon having been outgrown the day it was built. Uh, it's hard to imagine a pre-World War II Washington. Well, it was here, and it really <laughs> didn't amount to much. It was, uh, I wanted to call the book Our Town Goes to War, you know, the old uh, play, Our Town, Country Town, uh, what's it, Grover's Corners, Mm. which is sort of what it was like. There was uh, really very little to do here. There were a few movies, no no theater much. The National was there, but it was dark most of the time. The restaurants fried everything in deep fat, (laughs) using the same fat over and over, I think. And it was really not uh, that much of a town. People in business here told me that when they wanted to do anything serious, they went to Baltimore. This story, though, it must, it must have been rattling around inside your head for, for years and years. Why now? Why did you write the book right now? Well, I'll tell you, I stole the idea, Bill, from a book by Margaret Leach, published in 1940, called Reveille in Washington. It was a description of life in this city during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln's time. She obviously was not here then, so she worked from secondary sources and letters and books and so on. I read it and liked it a lot. It won a Pulitzer Prize, in fact, and I liked it very much and decided that since I was here at the time and saw all of this stuff, I could uh, I could do it without having to plow through the library and uh, spend all night um, spend all night reading and copying and so on. And so that's where I got the idea. I stole it. Whether you call it history or whether you call it reminiscence or whatever you choose to call it, as your as your introduction points out, it still gives those of us young enough to have not been there 
a picture so much richer than a history book that'll say, on this date, this happened, on this date, this happened, on this date, this agency was created. This is the stuff of history. Well, I don't... You and I, you and I are both journalists, so I can... I don't hesitate too much in saying this. I think we write better than historians. I think we have a better eye for detail than historians, a better eye for anecdotes and little funny events that describe and illuminate the time we are describing. Um, historians are, have their own way of working, and uh, my son is a historian, so uh, uh, they have their own way of working, and it's fine. But um, history is one thing and journalism another. Actually, they're much the same, but journalism is... Uh, I think journalism is better written. As you say, the the, the, the little anecdotes, the, the hostess who uh, cries out at the end of a dinner party, no one who I wanted to come came. <laughs> <laughs> she wanted big names, and they didn't come. Would, <laughs> she was furious. Would the transformation have taken place without the war? No. You know, one thing that almost no one realizes, unless he's old enough to have been here at the time, what really changed the city was, of course, the growth of the government. The growth of the government was a result of the withholding tax, which could not have been put in effect without the force and pressure of the war. The government stood here, its mouth open, stunned to see what a Niagara of money was coming in. And so they have busied themselves ever, ever since finding ways to spend it. And we see that they have succeeded very well. We, we would not, though, today still be, do you think, the sleepy southern town? No, the world has changed, and I think Washington would have grown, but it, I doubt it would have grown as much because there wouldn't have been as much money here to attract so many people. You know, lawyers, lobbyists, accountants, economists, and all kinds of people who come here to work either for the government or about the government. And without, without, it, um, without all this money, it wouldn't be this big. We're still a little schizophrenic, though, as to whether or not we're a northern city or a southern city, aren't we? I suppose you might fall into schizophrenia, but I, I don't really care that much <laughs> whether it's north or south. It doesn't make a whole lot of difference. It's sort of halfway in between. The Mason-Dixon line is to the north of us, but um, who cares? Yeah, I, I was also wondering something else. In this day and age when we have 22-year-old athletes writing autobiographies, everyone seems to have a, <laughs> a book in them. This is your first, isn't it? Yes, and probably last. But you've been you've been at the forefront. You've seen history made in the, in, the, in this one volume. You scarcely begin to scratch the surface of some of the events you've seen. Well, that is true. But you know, most people who write books don't do anything else. I have a very busy work schedule, and I have a family, I have a wife, and I have kids and who have grown up. And I don't really have all that much spare time. To and I, the further fact, I should have said this first. I don't have a really good idea for a book. If you have one, give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> the the reviews, of course, have been excellent. Were you surprised that there became a bestseller? I suppose so. I, I, you know, when you're doing this kind of thing, particularly since I've never done it before, I had no idea how it would go over, how it would be received. It was so... I've spent so much time. I've spent eight years off and on with it, uh, skipping at least a year or two at times, and a couple of times I felt like saying, I wasn't... I'm tired of this. I don't want to do anymore. I'm not going to finish it. I finally did. My wife pushed me and my son pushed me, and uh, he did the research or helped organize the research. He was, at that time, he was a professor of history at Harvard, and he used the last remaining slavery class in America, graduate students, because they have to do what their professors tell them to do or not get their degrees. So he made them go into the Library of Congress and the Roosevelt Library and so on and dig out a lot of this stuff. And they worked very hard and did a lot of good work. 
After this short break, David Brinkley recalls racially segregated Washington, D.C. Now back to my 1989 interview with David Brinkley. Of course, now you've, uh, over the past year or so, you've seen some of the best interviewers. You've seen some of the worst. Does it feel comfortable being on the other side of the microphone? I do. I, I am, as you may know, accustomed to asking the questions. I uh, listen to you in the mornings when I'm shaving and as often as I can during the day. I've read in other books about uh, how the uh, the media changed, how its relationship with the White House. Boy, you saw all this. You were right here in the middle of all this. Did you realize what you were in the middle of when you were I, in the middle of it? I probably didn't. Bill, I was um, working here, working for NBC. At uh, Most of that time, I was writing scripts, news scripts for announcers to read. And uh, I guess if I ever learned to write, that's probably where it was, because when you do that kind of thing, as you well know, you have to write it in such a way that is crystalline clear, no ambiguity, no long, fuzzy sentences, because when you're listening, not reading, you can't follow it very well. So you... Um, Make it as clear and as simple as possible. Also, so whoever's reading it can't read it wrongly. And so I did that for some years before I began reading it on the air myself. And I was very busy with that. I probably was too dumb to understand that um, I should have been keeping better notes than I kept, should have been keeping clippings and files and so on. I didn't do any of that. I don't know why. I just didn't. But who would have guessed? No, who would? Do you like this Washington compared to the Washington you first came to know? I do. I think it's a much better town than it was then. There's more to do. There are more places to go. There's um, this very active and busy, and there's something to do almost every minute, far more than any one person has time to do. Is that how you define a great city, is how much there is to do? I think so. I don't know any other way to define it. If you lived in a little tiny village where there was never anything to do, I think it would be uh, it would be very hard to deal with. Here, that's it's a big, busy city. There are some disadvantages to that, crowding, traffic, so on. But nevertheless, if you have to live in a big city, I think this is the best. It was laid out well, wasn't it? I think so. And it's still small enough to be coherent. You can still go almost anywhere you want to go by car, as you can't in New York. Park, somehow. It's not always easy, but you can do it. And um, you go out at night, and you can you can drive yourself. You don't have to flag taxis in the streets on a rainy night, which is one thing I detest about New York, the difficulty of getting around. So I think, is again, if you have to live in a big city, this is the, the best we have. Did it ever occur to you that as the transformation was taking place that, that someday the, the city would look like this? And that you... No. You know, when <laughs> I first saw K Street, for example, uh, there was the YWCA on one corner selling cookies and having... Um, young women living there. From that point on northward, or westward, I guess, on K Street were a lot of old red brick Victorian two-story houses. You know, the kind made with really dark, brownish, ugly brick with a little iron parapet around the top for ornament. And that's what K Street was. And, you know, if I'd wanted to get rich, and if I'd had any money at all, I could have bought all those houses <laughs> and sold them to builders so they could put up those uh, high-rises. It was a very segregated city as well, wasn't it? Totally. Just totally. Black persons, for example, were not allowed to go into people's drugstore. I had a lot of lunch counters then. I think they're all gone now. Lunch counters serving ham sandwiches and so on. Black persons could not sit on the stools. They could come in and buy a ham sandwich and take it out, but they couldn't sit on a stool. It was silly, and it was crazy, and it was 
vicious. Did we see this the the beginnings of the civil rights movement during the war here in town? Yes, I think we did. There were the Howard University students began picketing um, first civil rights picketing I ever saw. I think they picketed people's drugstores and they picketed a restaurant on 14th Street called Thompson's because they wouldn't seat them. And Thompson finally just gave in and said, "Come on and sit down," because he didn't want to get in trouble with the law. Peoples finally gave in. Um, but that was about all, as I remember, that is about all they accomplished at the time. The uh, transit company, it was then called Capital Transit, would not hire blacks to drive buses or run the trolley cars. Because the draft was taking all the men away, they had to shut down some bus and trolley lines for lack of drivers. But they still wouldn't hire blacks. That's how dumb it was. How do you write a book such as this to appeal not only to those people who were there, they remember it, and they say, wow, yeah, I remember those LaSalles and the Grahams run, driving down the street, but also to those of us who are younger, without having the tone of, you know, back in my day, we walked 17 miles to school one way. <laughs> yes, I've, I've heard that many too many times, from old goats telling me, well, you got it so easy when I was going to school, I had to walk 12 miles barefoot, and so on and so on, all of which I think of lies, but nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, you have to listen and be polite. Um, I, I think, I think um, again, Bill, it's because we're both journalists and we understand the value of uh, interesting material well told with good anecdotes and interesting people and so on. Uh, as I say, it's not formal history. Formal history would not have told about all those parties and so on. They would have felt that was not important enough. But I, it's probably not important, but it's interesting. As you also point out, that the, so many of the people who were there that you wanted to talk to, sadly, are are dying. Right. They're, they're, it's been, for Pete's sake, it's been almost 50 years. It has, and the only reason I was able to do it was that I was came here when I was about 20. And um, the others, people who were in positions of power and responsibility, were much, much older, and now they're either dead or quite elderly. So I had to move fast to catch them, and some I missed. It died before I could get to them. There's so many young people, the generations of young people, who have no personal memory of the war. Their only personal memory may come from a parent who was somehow connected with the war, as as in my case. Or more likely now, a grandparent. A grandparent? Mm -hmm. Is it fading out? Are we, are we losing sight of World War II? Well, you know, at my generation, and I'm in my 60s, uh, when we say the war, we mean World War II. My father's generation, my mother, when they said the war, they meant World War I. I would guess that young people now, younger people now, to the extent they talk about it at all, when they say the war, they mean Vietnam. So I hope we have finally broken the cycle of every generation having a war of its own. It would be nice not to have any for any generation. David Brinkley died in 2003. He was 82. And, of course, you can find easy Amazon links to David Brinkley's books at our website, heardeverything.com. Oh, and while you're there, be sure and listen to my interview with Roger Mudd. So I finally said, why do you want to be president? And uh, when you see the film, the, there's about six or seven seconds when nothing is happening. Didn't help him, I must say. And my conversation with Sam Donaldson. You come to think of the television correspondent who's bringing you the bad news in someone's administration who you love as being an enemy. And then who oh, brings you the good news if you hate that person as being a cheerleader for the team. And of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. 
Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the guy who turned his background as a U.S. Marine sergeant into a successful acting career. My 2005 conversation with R. Lee Ermey. I don't swear as a rule, so it's not hard for me to keep it clean. Uh, I use words like numbnuts. I mean, come on, you know, uh, that's not really swearing. That's creative dialogue. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.